Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And uh, to set us up for the movie that we're going to be talking about today, I wanted to discuss a problem that often arises when you're making a monster movie. And that is the problem of picking which kind of monster to commit to. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, uh, maybe the family's going out to dinner and everybody's trying to decide, oh, where should we go? Uh, you know, somebody, you know, brother brother Daryl wants to go to the steakhouse and, and uh, grandpa wants to go to the Mexican restaurant and so forth. Everybody wants something different. They can't all have it at the same place unless you go to the, the king-size buffet where uh, you can get a little bit of everything on your plate, and that's what's going on with the movie today. They decided, why commit to just one kind of monster? You know, why make a movie just about a, like, monster baboon hag bride or a little diminutive rubber merman goblin or fart zombies or uh, a cast member from Cats that has a hook hand? What if you could just put them all in the same movie and let them all run wild? Yeah, and that is very much the case with the movie we're talking about here today. This is going to be Spookies from 1986, a, a great year for genre films, though I, I can't lay uh, – I, I can't, we can't credit Spookies for really being a part of that. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is not a great movie. This, this may be one of the, the worst movies we've, we've discussed for, uh, for Weird House, but, you know, we're still gonna, we're still gonna focus on the positives. It does have some positives, and I think the Monster Buffet is the big one, because, you know, uh, when you mentioned this, I was trying to uh, think of other films that really hit the same caliber, uh, you know, of, of just having multiple different types of monsters, and, I mean, I thought of Gremlins too, but then again, even though those are diverse types of Gremlins, they're still Gremlins. Right. I thought of yeah. Monster Squad, but that oh, sure. is still a case where those are all like universal monsters that are that have been historically paired together. So it's not that weird. It's established. Um, or I thought of, say, 13 Ghosts, uh, both versions of it, but especially <laughs> the, the later version of it was a lot of fun. Had 13 very different types of ghosts, but they were all still essentially ghosts. I keep meaning to watch that one. Rachel and I love those like late '90s terrible uh, monster movie remakes. You know the '90s, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's it called, House on Haunted Hill, and all that. And oh, I yeah. keep thinking we're going to watch Thirteen Ghosts. Maybe this is the year. It is. I. It is. I've heard it's loud. That's the main <laughs> descriptor I've heard applied to it. It's loud. It's got a good cast, and it's some neat ghosts in it. But 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 okay yeah I see the point you're making so yeah monster squad and and that combines all of the classic universal monsters into one thing so you got like a uh, an off brand creature from the black lagoon you got a wolf man you got a mummy you got a dracula and so forth but this one yeah I like that this is like a monster squad but for obscure or previously unknown monsters or monsters that you would not think of as going in a monster movie so it does have sort of uh sort of like uh dirt caked fart zombies that that mm-hmm. just uh that just exude flatulence as they chase people around in a room and it does have this like baboon bride creature it does have a, a, a like a, a lady who turns into a giant spider i think maybe yep. she's supposed to be a certain kind of yokai um but it's also got like a if you bought a one of those grim reapers that goes on your lawn for Halloween and raises the the scythe up and down and goes whoa when people walk by but it came to life and started attacking people it has that and it's also just got a jawa 
<laughs> yeah, sort of a yeah, kind of a child vampire Jawa running around. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of lot of stuff here, and there's not really a good reason why it's all there. This is not a movie that's really concerned why people or monsters have any reason to be in the same place at the same time, uh-huh. and yet there they are. Well, this movie did get me thinking about one thing. I think maybe, maybe, maybe the weird structure of this film gave me a sort of insight into a curios- a type of curiosity that powers the construction of certain horror movies. And it is, I think, the same type of curiosity that leads people to make those um, – uh, this might be overly nerdy and obscure, but have you ever seen those videos people make on the internet where they just take like some uh, like real-time strategy video game and they just keep pairing different kind of units from the game against each other and seeing which one wins? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's my, you know, Power Mech Marine versus the the Alien Screamer Queen. And, uh, you know, which one will be victorious? You just do that a hundred times with different types of units. I think sometimes 80s horror movies especially kind of work that way, but they work with a certain kind of monster or slasher and then with certain types of human stereotypes or or personality archetypes. So it's like, what does a nerd versus hockey mask slasher look like? Or what does preppy rich kid versus merman gremlin look like? You know, mm-hmm. it's like the bug fights, but with, <laughs> uh, with human stereotypes on one side and different types of monsters on the other. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, I can see that that definitely being a part of the alchemy going into some of some of those pictures. But in this case, it's not this does not feel like the product of an alchemy lab. This seems like <laughs> a, the, the lab has been ransacked and all the the liquids are are mixing together on the table and making uh-huh. random explosions. Oh, this movie does have some really good random explosions. You don't yeah. see them coming. No. <laughs> um so Spookies. I guess we should talk about what the the basic elevator pitch here is. Um, Basically, the plot, such as it exists, is that people, random people, are drawn to a weird house in a graveyard where a warlock is trying to bring his bride back to life, and equally random monsters rampage through the shambles of what is essentially a kind of resurrected film. I also was thinking of it in terms of what if Troll 2 had lacked vision and just featured more <laughs> monsters. What if Troll 2 was more of a hodgepodge instead of like one one director's clear artistic vision realized to its fullest extent? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I, for me this film was worse than Troll 2. This I think this is the worst film we've uh, we we've looked at on Weird House. And uh and I think ultimately I would like not to return to its level, but there's still some fun stuff to talk about here. Well, wait, then how did you end up on this one? What what led you to Spookies? Um, I was familiar with the title, and uh-huh. I had signed up for Shudder to watch a previous film that we had covered. I forget which one. And I was, I was flipping around, and there was Spookies. So I thought, well, uh, I'm going to start watching it. Let's see what this is like. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's that's how it came to be. And, oh, and the other part, this is important too. This was right before the Labor Day weekend. Yes. And I knew we had a shortened week coming up, and we were talking about doing um, another movie that I think we're going to be doing for next week that is mm-hmm. um, a much better film and has some more uh, uh, 
uh, I, don't, I don't know, discuss, it has some, some plot points in it that are going to be worth discussing more. And I thought, well, let's save that for next week when we have a little more time. Spookies is perhaps the, the, the right amount of movie for what we have time to put together. Okay, I got another question. The okay. title, Spookies, does it refer to the buffet of different kinds of monsters? Are they, are they the titular Spookies? I guess. I guess so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of spooky as a noun. That's an adjective, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the title sometimes, it makes me think of things like the like Jeepers Creepers or phrases like that or the heebie-jeebies or something where I'm like, oh, okay. well, maybe the idea is this film is supposed to give me the creepies. Like, I have the creepies now because I watched this film. Do You mean the spookies? The spookies. What I say? The creepies? Okay. The creepies. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I Maybe mean, I, guess I have the spookies because I watched the film. I, I don't know. That's that's as much as I could figure out. Well, I wondered also though if it was um, if it's a, a little like a shortened kind of short, cute word with an s at the end because it's in the era of the Gromlins type movies. So mm. you know, Gremlins, Critters, and all that. If it was trying to cash in on that, oh, uh, 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 Ghoulies, that sort of thing. Oh, exactly. Did, did they think, okay, we, we need something like that to, to get the people uh, picking up the box in the video store? How about Spookies? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it was probably something like that. All right. Well, let's let's give everyone a taste of the the trailer audio here, so you'll you'll know what you're getting into a little bit more. What's this supposed to be? <laughs> Looks sort of like a Parcheesi game or something. I know what this is. I mean, I've never seen one like this before. It's a Ouija board. Well, how do you play? Don't you need dice or something? You don't play. The Ouija board is a tool for communication. Communication with the dead. All right, well, one way you know this is going to be a really good movie is that it has three directors. Yeah, yeah. And and from the get-go, it apparently had two directors. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you get into the production history of this film, we're not going to really get into it a lot. Uh, there's, there's a whole documentary that is a special feature on the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray for this, and that feature is that that uh, that making a feature is longer than the film itself has a lot Whoa. of interviews and if you're if you're super into all the nitty-gritty of of the production of this sort of film then i would say go check that out but uh ultimately i feel like a lot of it was maybe maybe too much for me like i, I ultimately I, I love a a movie of this caliber but i don't necessarily need all the ins and outs of how it is made but uh you know your mileage will vary but uh, essentially, the, the key factors to keep in mind here is you had you had these two directors. You had Thomas uh, Doran and you had Brendan Faulkner, and they were the initial directors. And the producer is this guy Michael Lee, who was um, uh, he's been described as uh, as a, like a video nasty millionaire who made a lot of money importing films into Britain uh, during the period where a lot of these were banned. His company, I think, was uh, was uh, VIP Co or Vipco, mm-hmm. and he wanted to produce a film. These guys already had sort of a pre-existing vision. And then as a producer, he had a certain amount of in, insight into what he wanted. Um, they shot this film that was going to be uh, uh, titled uh, Twisted Souls. 
And okay. then that relationship fell apart, and another director was brought in to finish it, and that's uh, this director, Jeannie Joseph. Uh, uh-huh. She ended up directing additional footage and completing the picture. And so what we have on screen here is is one picture, but there you can tell where stuff was added. There's like, like yeah. this whole additional plot. Where, where you, there are characters who you never see on screen together. Right. Uh, so you you can tell, I think, what the framing narrative is. So if I understand correctly, the plot about the uh, the party kids who drive around in the woods and then end up at a house, a random house in the woods, go into the house, and then are attacked by a buffet of different kinds of monsters, that was the original film. And mm-hmm. then the framing narrative where there is an evil old warlock who is uh, who is sacrificing people who wander into his house to the monsters in order to revive his dead bride. That is the framing narrative. Yep. That was, that was later added to sort of boost this up to feature length. Right. And, you know, ultimately, like I said, I don't want to, I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of the production. Um, I did watch the, the featurette, but, uh, or the feature rather, it's, it's pretty too long to be a featurette, Uh, (laughs) but, uh, I would say that the, the that featureissimo, ulti- the featureissimo here. Yeah, <laughs> um, I you know I don't think the film was ever going to be good. This is not like this was on track to be something, and and it was changed into something else. I don't think there's a case to be made for like release the Twisted Souls cut or anything right. of that nature. Um, I, I don't. I think the film is as fun and memorable as it is because you have so much weird stuff going on, and you have these two different energies involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be spookies if it wasn't this uh, ridiculous. I got to say, it does make for some extremely funny moments, uh, mm-hmm. the intercutting between the different plots. Because, first of all, it gives it an energy similar to Pod People, where it has at the beginning, like, the A, B, and C plot, and it's frantically cutting back and forth between them at mm-hmm. such a pace that, that you are constantly trying to figure out which movie you're in. Um, but then also uh, to uh, to stay on the mystery science theater theme for a second, it sometimes seems almost as if the warlock in the framing narrative is sort of riffing the movie in in the middle. So like the 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 kids will be walking through the house, and one of them will make a comment to say like. Uh, Wow, the so the lights in this place still work. Maybe somebody lives here, and then it'll cut to the warlock, a different room, different place. You're not even sure where he is, but he'll go. Someone does still live here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, that was a moment that I definitely uh, laughed out loud. Out, uh, yeah. yeah the, the resulting energy is 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 weird and wonderful. It, it also feels a bit like. The stuff with the warlock that was added, it's its its like you decided to make a horror anthology, mm-hmm. but you only had the one picture to draw upon. Because there's certainly been cases where you have like different productions that were unfinished or, or were recut, and then you have them re-released as part of a horror anthology with some sort of a frame, framing uh, narrative in place. But right. in this case, it's just, just one. the one picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, a framing narrative around one movie that was not going to make it to feature length. I'd say that core movie is what maybe sixty minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how much stuff got got cut. I know some stuff got cut, but um, is it stuff that would have really that I really wanted to see instead of this wizard and his uh, strange cat creature? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, let me let me go ahead and mention some of the other projects that, uh, that, that some of the other folks were involved in here. So Thomas Duran, again, co-director, uh, co-writer on Twist, the Twisted Souls portion of this. Um, interestingly enough, he was the voice of the monster in Devil's Express, starring Warhawk Tanzania. Ooh. Yeah. So I uh, got to give him credit for that. He also worked on a smattering of other genre pictures. Uh, Brendan Faulkner, uh, also the you know, co-director, co-writer on Twisted Souls, wrote and directed the 1992 film Killer Dead. Jeannie Joseph, who finished the film, um, she uh, wrote and directed the 1987 horror flick Mindbenders. I have not seen this, but I looked it up. Apparently, it's also known as Invasion of the Mindbenders, and the VHS cover definitely made me laugh out loud. So it says Invasion of the Mindbenders, and then it has like uh, a lady on fire, and she's shooting rays of light out of her eyeballs uh, over a guy who who's looking up in enraptured at a bunch of clouds. And then next to it, it's got a tagline that says Controlling a mind is a dangerous thing. <laughs> I like how this does look like a a horror paperback from yeah. uh, the eighties. So, oh yeah, it's cool. got looks more like book art than than movie art. Um, <laughs> and a plot description from IMDb on uh, Mindbenders says: Two teenagers notice a sudden change in their fellow students. No one is able to explain this zombie-like behavior, which, at the command of an unseen alien, makes them punish transgressors with merciless violence. <laughs> All right. So um, most of the there are a lot of people involved in this. There's a lot of there's a lot of, of of loving attention paid to the monsters, and we're ultimately not going to be able to to mention all of them by name. But uh, I, I want to mention a few of them as well as uh, the the writers involved here. So uh, Jennifer Aspinall was uh, in the makeup department. Went on to work on a, on a lot of projects, including Westworld, Captain Marvel, and Saturday Night Live. There's uh, uh, Frank M. Farrell, who, uh, who was one of the writers on the screenplay. He also produced 1987's Street Trash. That's a Ugh. melt movie that we've discussed before. Yeah. Anne Bergand uh, was a writer, additional material, plus costume design. She was also associate producer on 1994's The Mask. Yes, the one with Jim Carrey and a green cartoon face. So did Anne Bergen do the costumes in this? Because we're going to have some commentary on the costumes. Uh, she at least did some of them. But also you have this guy, Tom Molinelli, who is credited with art direction, art department, and costume design. This is another individual who worked on Street Trash. Okay. There's a guy by the name of uh, Al Magliochetti who plays Lewis Wilson in this. I don't remember which one Lewis Wilson was, uh, but he also did special effects photography. He went on to do visual effects in a lot of big pictures, including Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, Waterworld, T2, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, The Addams Family, Jason Goes to Hell, and many others. Oh, in fact, so I see the connection to uh, T2 there, but the uh, camera operator, the Steadicam operator in this movie, J. Michael Murrow, I think also did steady cam for a lot of James Cameron movies, including Terminator 2. Yeah, this is an individual that I believe Michael Weldon pointed out as being involved in this picture in his write-up in uh, one of the Psychotronic, uh, in the Psychotronic Video Guide or the Psychotronic uh, uh, Video Guide or the Guide to Film. I can't remember which one. Now, getting into the actors a little bit, there are a number of actors in this who didn't really have any other credits. But my favorite actor in, in this whole picture is Peter Asillo Jr. He plays Rich, <laughs> is uh oh yeah. oh um, I would say the richest character in this film. Um 
how would we describe him? He's the he's the cut up. He's the the he's a ham. He's a ham. He's a, a constant he's a ham. Glorious ham. He's a ham who's. Uh, you get the the sense that he's improvising a lot of his lines. There are scenes of just um, where where it it feels like what happened is they just turned the camera on him and they're like, "Rich, come on, you know, just riff a little bit." And so he'll yeah. like wander around, kind of bumping into the other characters and be like, "Hey, hey, how's your sinuses?" and stuff like that. He also uh, is plays a character who loves beer. Uh, and it's clear he loves beer because even after the monsters start attacking and all everything goes crazy, he's still always got his beer in his hand. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a lot of fun in this. He's like this, this tall, mustachioed guy uh, that was apparently in real life was just always on, just was always the goofy cut up and was much beloved. Um, and and so he brings that exact same energy to this role. His character, Rich, has a puppet named Mook. And he, so he's off. He's constantly interacting and harassing the other characters with this puppet. And he wears a T-shirt that pe- feature, features an image of himself and the puppet Mook on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, th- he lived uh, 1953 through 2017. He uh, he played an uncredited zombie in Dawn of the Dead, and then went on to do a lot of bit parts. Um, in things, often freaks and crazies, sometimes background work. I noticed he pops up even in an episode of 30 Rock playing a uh, paparazzi character. So, you know, just somebody clicking a camera in the background. Hmm. But then we also have this character, Duke, who is Duke. Who, I who is love also Duke. interesting. How would, you, how would you describe Duke to everyone? Duke is a is a fabulous bully. He's sort of the, like, tough guy, bad guy, bad boy uh, of the group. Um it's hard to convey by describing, but a lot of the scenes with Duke in them have this bizarre rhythm and logic that you sort of get you get a feel for as the movie goes on, but it, it, it can't really be compared to anything else I can think of. I'm going to try to describe one scene just to give you an idea of like of Duke rhythm. Okay. And it goes like this. So like they're in the house and Duke just pulls a box off the shelf and he opens it and an amulet flies out of the box onto the floor. And then this other character named Carol picks up the amulet and she says, isn't it wonderful? And he goes, pretty damn weird if you ask me. What is it, art or something? Think it's worth any (laughs) money? And then he immediately, from saying this line, turns his head to the side and sees a door that has just been behind him the whole time. And then he goes, what the hell is in here? And he starts jostling the lock frantically. And then he breaks a chair across the door and starts shoving a board into the door jam, trying to pry it open. This is Duke energy. Would you agree? Yes, yes, very much so. He, um, I, 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 in my notes, I, I noted that he was essentially a discount Fonzie in a trash bag uh, yeah. because oh, he's oh. wearing this weird costume. He's wearing plastic clothes, like a shirt and pants that are, they look like they're made from the same material material as like black heavy duty garbage bags. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's I like don't. a workout thing or what. Yeah. I, I don't know that 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 is literally what it looks like it's made out of. And I, uh, yeah, I, I have no explanation. Um, I, my, one of my early theories watching this film was that he was perhaps like the front man of a band or something. And that are the characters, the human characters in this film, it's essentially like a band and some hangers on and like maybe their older producer. But this is a complete misread on my part uh, because 
there's nothing to support that in the film. Uh, yeah. There's nothing to support any actual connections between any of these human characters. Well, this gets you to something about the movie, which is that it has one of my absolute favorite horror movie tropes, which is the utterly implausible friend group. Uh, you know, many 80s movies especially have this. Mm -hmm. The 80s were the decade of the implausible friend group movie, though, you know, it still happens every now and then. But I think you probably know what I'm talking about. But if not, just picture this. OK, so it's a horror movie. you got a group of friends hanging out. Maybe they're going to somebody's uncle's cabin in the woods or they're driving around looking for a party, as in this movie or something like that. And the group consists of people who would never in reality be hanging out together. What you usually get is either one or two of each teen subculture archetype that the movie wants to show. So you get like a jock, a nerd, a punk, a stoner, a preppy rich kid, etc. Instead of what you would imagine would happen in reality, which is you'd have like a group of jocks or like a group of nerds, a group of stoners. And, and that mm -hmm. would be the friend group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes in, I guess in your better films, you see a diverse group of people brought together by, by circumstances that then right. have to survive the monster. Oftentimes maybe, sense, yeah. yeah. Like maybe it's, uh, you know, it's stoners and greasers, um, because they're both fleeing a storm or something, and oh, we're sure. holding up in the same place, and now we're have we now we have to fight goblins or something. Right, that's the more like you'd get in uh, Night of the Living Dead. You know, different people are sort of driven into a into a, a house by the zombies attacking. It's not like they were all hanging out to begin with. Right, but in this film, everyone was hanging out to begin with, and we're yes. given no explanation why that would be. <laughs> You know, and I think there are a number of reasons this happens. Number one is what I was talking about earlier. It's kind of the bug fights mentality. Like you, mm -hmm. you want to see different human cultural archetypes uh, being faced with violent struggle or extreme circumstances in, with that kind of like bug fights or, or uh, video game unit versus unit mentality. It's just kind of a, a, a basic curiosity about like, how does this one work? Uh, but there's another version of it I, I think that's is sort of there at the core too, which is that the dead teenager movies of the 80s are often, in essence, clumsy and vulgar morality plays. And as such, in a way, you get them trying to sort of recreate the dynamics of the Canterbury Tales. So whereas in the <laughs> Canterbury Tales, you would, might get the Knight's Tale and the Pardoner's Tale and the Wife of Bath. Here you get the Jock's Tale and the Punk's Tale and the Nerd's Tale. And uh, and the, those are the little vignettes you see them, them go through before they finally meet their, their end at the ultimate confrontation with the monster or Mad Slasher or whatever it is. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen Rich's Tale. I guess we do see Rich's Tale to a certain extent here. Yeah, kind of. Rich, Rich, uh, I guess he partner's tale sort of, right? But also Miller's Tale, one of, one of the good humorous ones. <laughs> but I totally agree with you. It, it works better when there is some kind of external circumstance that can assemble people who are, are not naturally friends. But in this movie, yeah, it's just like, well, they're all hanging out together for no for no reason. They, they appear to hate each other. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's tension from the very beginning. Yeah, but we don't really know why. There's it's not explained, but it's the kind of tension that eventually erupts into a full fledged fist fight between two of the characters. Uh, in fact, between Duke and the older guy who I thought was maybe a a, a, ma a manager of some sort, they have like an epic quiet man esque fist fight. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> and, and and I'm not really sure why it occurs. Oh man, that seems good. Oh, and, and like their girlfriends are there just like watching them fight. And mm -hmm. one of them is like, should we stop them? And the other one's basically like, no, nah, just let them go. 
<laughs> and it's, they've been beset by multiple monsters at this point. So yeah, uh, it's just not a good time for a fist fight. Okay, well, are you ready to talk a little more about the plot? Yes, such as it is. Let's let's get into the plot. Uh, what, so one of the first things that had me laughing in this movie was, uh, I, I know this was the title of the original film before it was recut and supplemented by the additional footage, but it, this uh, credit was given to Twisted Souls, Inc., Twisted Souls Incorporated. <laughs> Um, which I, I don't know. That sounds like a, like a tattoo company or something. I'm not sure what yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but so you, you get an opening on a graveyard. It's a very Ed Wood style graveyard with some kind of flimsy looking, uh, tombstones. And then there is a stone crypt cover on one of the graves that starts throbbing, like it's stretching and deforming. And immediately I thought, oh, that, that's a nice special effect. I think that could be similar the, the, there's a similar effect actually in the original nightmare on elm street where you remember the scene where uh, a character is lying on a bed dreaming and then on the wall behind them like freddy's head sort of stretches out through the wall and i think i'm not sure but i think that was accomplished just by using like a sheet a flexible sheet as the wall and then so you know the actor sticks their head in there and it looks like the wall is actually bending around some surface uh, some object coming out of it i think the same thing's probably going on with the grave here yeah that was a great scene in in nightmare that was a great scene yeah it reminds me a lot of the short story the yellow wallpaper oh okay uh, what was Spooky's actually based on an early script treatment by Charlotte Perkins Gilman? <laughs> I think no. I recall reading that somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, no, we so we keep seeing this graveyard right out in front of the the big white mansion. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a big white mansion. It's the house for the movie. It looks kind of like the White House because it has these pillars out in the front. Well, it does have an interesting history because it turns out this is the oh, John J. Homestead. That's right. What a bizarre connection. So this. Spookies, the movie with fart zombies, was filmed at the 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 ancestral home of John Jay, one of the U.S. founding fathers, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers. Uh, I didn't know this when I watched the movie, but it made me think back on it. And I'm like, hey, could this be interpreted as containing any Federalist propaganda? <laughs> I couldn't really, I couldn't really make that work, but no. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, so we'll keep seeing this as the setting. They show you a lot of the setting. Uh, And then it cuts to this dude in white gloves sitting Dr. Claw style. So it's a high back chair. Uh, He's got his back to the camera. He's got his hand on a cane in white gloves. He's got a big old ring on. And he is talking to a wintergreen coffin. And he says, I can wait no longer. The final foolish victims will be here very soon. Uh, so just doing a really excellent accent that kind of comes and goes. He doesn't always have the accent. Yeah, it's not very consistent. There are times where it feels like it's 50% low pan and 50% major taut from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, it's oh, it, yeah. it kind of it, he's going for some sort of a German accent like that's what he's aiming for. But there's a bit of drift to it. The vinyl foolish victims. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that may, maybe that connects more thematically than I realized, because, of course, Duke does turn out to be wearing vinyl clothes. So mm-hmm. one, at least one of the victims is vinyl in nature. That's true. That's true. But OK, oh, so we get a, a, a read on the warlock's plan. This guy is going to sacrifice victims in his house in order to resurrect his his wife i think and and we're led to believe at the time that like you know they loved each other dearly but she is long departed and and she will soon be raised and they will be happy together forever yes 
yeah, it's uh, and, and all right. So it, it it seems at this point in the film, like uh, like all right, let's see how this occurs. Let's see how sure, this sure. this this happens. Uh, then we cut to I, I is this might be movie B or movie C at this point. We cut to a guy running around in the woods who looks like a cast member from Cats. He looks like a Jellicle cat going to the Jellicle ball, and he has a hook for a hand. Yeah, some sort of a were cat with a hook for a hand in this kind of strange costume running around looking you know very creepy. Uh you know I'm not saying that these are uh you know it's not thriller level of uh of creature creation here, but it's mm-hmm. pretty good and I am legitimately creeped out by this guy. Uh oh and we also get the uh, cast member of cats observing uh a kid with a backpack who's just wandering around by himself in the woods. Right. Is this Billy or is he just a I Billy? Think- I think it's Billy. Yeah. And then you get to movie C, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in movie C, we meet our implausible friend group, which are driving around the woods in two different cars. Car number one consists of of a bad boy driver. This is Duke. He's wearing his black plastic clothes. He's being an aggressive jerk from moment one, just screaming at his passengers about spilling beer on the upholstery while he's sort of zipping around in the dark. And then you see car number two, a, the driver is this mu- much older guy who reads as like a, a, the ultimate narc hanging out with these teens around him. He's wearing a suit and tie. He is at least 15 years older than everyone else. I thought he was supposed to be somebody's dad, but I think he's just a member of this friend group who it, it looks like he could be their dad. Yeah, and I, I, it's never explained. And based on some of the you know, the behind-the-scenes interviews that I saw, I don't think they, they knew either. This was not something <laughs> where like they cut out some scenes that explain something. No, it's just it's just this is what they w- was put together, and they had no idea what yeah. their connections were supposed to be. And there's immediately a, a rivalry between this guy. We find out his name is Peter and Duke. Uh, the, mm. the drivers of the two cars don't like each other. Peter is talking about Duke. He says, I told you we shouldn't have followed him. First, he starts a fight at that party, gets us all thrown out, embarrasses the hell out of us. Then he gets us lost out here in the middle of nowhere. So I guess Duke's calling the shots. They're all just they're riding for Duke. And Duke Duke is not is not proving his worth. Duke is leading them astray. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's so ridiculous. I, I can't even begin to follow it. I guess part of it is the problem of having this many monsters in a film. You need not one, but two carloads of people to serve as victims. And uh, yeah, and then yeah. you get this kind of a situation. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, some some movies get around that with a van. That's true. Or just, hey, yeah, just have two groups. You know, there's the one yeah. van, there's the the other. I mean, Troll 2 sort of managed this, right? Oh, sure. Or you had the they family, don't. and then you had the like the boyfriend and his um, his crew that were coming mm-hmm. in another vehicle. Uh, they don't have to know each other before they get to the house. If you just want to serve them up to a buffet of monsters, they could just both arrive at the house. I mean, I guess they just wanted to have lots of dynamic dialogue between yeah. all of these these people Which from they the get go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, so we then we cut back to Billy. I guess this is movie two or B B plot. Um, he's in the woods eating a snack cake by himself, and then he gets startled by a guy wearing a denim tuxedo, who's like, "Hey, give an old man a light!" And it's very creepy. Uh, though the guy is not old. Um, mm-hmm. And then the kid gives him a light. Why does this kid kid have a lighter? I don't know. And then the guy's like, "Go home!" And the kid's like, "No, I have." plans big plans 
And it turns out his parents forgot his 13th birthday, and that's why he ran away from home. So he's just running around in the woods. And then the kid walks away from the guy, and then the guy in the woods, as the kid walks away, is just immediately killed by the Jellicle cat. He gets, yeah. like, slashes on his face, like, while the kid is still in frame walking away. It's Yeah, it's such a weird series of events, because it's, yeah, this kid, runaway kid, in, 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 you know, running into a drifter. In a way, that feels like sort of a slice of Americana kind of tale, right? But sure. then the the drifter is just just torn to pieces by the by the werecat. Yeah, and then so we get a bunch more stuff with the which plot the A plot, I guess, or B plot, the one with the warlock trying to resurrect his wife. Um, we start seeing his face, and I got man, this is a dry, dry warlock. His face <laughs> is just caked with some kind of powder. He needs moisturizer. It it is it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> but we also get to see his uh, his wife in the coffin, and she kind of looks like a blonde Winona Ryder. Yeah. Uh, but eventually we cut back to the, the, the party party boys, the party kids in the cars. They're, they're driving around. Eventually they, they get blocked by an obstruction in the road. I think, I think Bustopher Jones throws a, a tree branch on the road in front of Duke's car, and then they mm-hmm. have to stop and move it. And, uh, and, uh, Peter, uh, Mr. Nark gets out of his car and he's like, listen, Duke, we've been driving around for two hours in circles, getting nowhere fast. And then Duke says, right, let's get out of this place. And then, uh, I wrote this exchange down because this was good. Peter says, what are we doing now? Duke says, we're partying, man. Something you're too old to appreciate, huh? If any of you people want to come have some fun, come with us. And then Peter says, this is ridiculous. Do you even know where you're going? And Duke says, yeah, I'm going nuts. I'm going nuts because I got to stand here and listen to you. So snappy. So snappy. Yeah. That's, that's some, some mammoth uh, material right there. That's like a sit back from the typewriter and kind of like go, ah, yeah. <laughs> All right. But we come back to the kid. We come back to Billy uh, wandering around. He's going to find the White House as well. Yeah, he wanders around. He, he finds the White House. He goes inside, of course, because, you know, horror movie logic. You just come across what appears to be an abandoned house that is not your house, and you just go in. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, you know, we've talked about tales. So many old tales involve leaving the trail or, you know, entering into the, the wild place where you're not supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in stories that involve a haunted house, and essentially this is a haunted house picture. Um, it's just haunted with random monsters instead of ghosts yeah. uh, it's like people are drawn to it people will find a reason to go into that haunted house be it for shelter or for treasure or in this case um with the with with the main characters for the potentiality of partying right uh and and actually the kid also goes into the house with the for with partying in mind yes uh, because apparently so his parents forgot it was his birthday that's why he ran away from home he wanders into the house uh, there. Oh, at this point, there's also this is when we start seeing a Jawa running around, just like a, a mm-hmm. like a child in a uh, in a in a like brown hooded cloak. But anyway, uh, Billy the kid, he he is in the house and he walks into a room full of birthday party streamers and sad half inflated balloons, and he goes, mm-hmm. "Cool." <laughs> and- <laughs> he says, "Hey, a surprise party! So you didn't forget after all. This is really great." So the again the logic of this is that this boy thinks his parents threw him a surprise birthday party in a random house that he walked into in the woods. <laughs> 
Uh, and then he opens a, a box that he thinks contains a bowling ball, but in fact it's a head, and it is the the warlock's head. And he goes, "Happy birthday, Billy!" Mwahaha. And uh, yeah, of course, there you go. But <laughs> between the the old warlock, who we we find out his name is Creon. Creon. Yeah, Creon and Billy like have this. Yeah, <laughs> they have this kind of. Uh, discount Mike and the Tall Man vibe from Phantasm. You know? Oh, uh, yeah. Creepy old man who's mysterious and seems to command supernatural powers. And, oh, and there's, of course, there are Jawa-esque creatures in both films, though, of course, Phantasm is on certainly on uh, several levels uh, ahead of this. Uh, yeah. You know, le- uh, an order of magnitude or two above Spookies in terms of quality. But the the thing you can always say on behalf of Spookies is Spookies has more variety. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, the Phantasm may have like three or so interesting kinds of monsters. Spookies has at least nine. Right. So, of course, eventually the party kids uh, arrive at the house and they're like, hey, here's a house. Let's go inside and see if there's a party. Uh, again, th- this is not the only I got to say this is not the only movie where this happens this is sort of standard 80s horror movie logic you just arrive at a place and you think there might be a party there and so you go inside and try to party right and i think rich has brought like snacks and beer right that's another part of it so they have brought a certain amount of party with them he has red stripe and he has chips and he's consuming them in almost every scene from here on out (laughs) <laughs> he's ultimately an optimist. He really like, this is not the party we intended to go to, but we are going to have a party here. We are going to enjoy ourselves in this just obviously haunted house. There's a weird sequence after this where the, the cat man chases Billy, birthday boy Billy around, chases him outside, and then like buries him alive i think what yes a like bizarre Billy's, scene yeah like watching this for the first time and not really knowing anything about the production you you're thinking well billy's going to be around for a while but no the werecat ambushes him like like massacres his face like squat you know just i don't know if he uses the hook or just his cat claws but swipes him across the face there's blood billy falls into uh, a dug grave and then the cat starts burying him alive and buries him alive, and you never see Billy again. <laughs> what? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, this plot line does not return. It's just like a, a, a like thirteen year old child does get killed, like at the beginning of this movie, and then it doesn't connect to anything. Yeah, it didn't connect to anything. Like some really bad taste. Speaking, you don't have your you don't have a child be your sort of throwaway victim. Yeah. Um, unless there are other child characters involved and they have a relationship with that child or, you know, he, the adults have a relationship with that child. It generally needs to mean something yeah. <laughs> for that to take place. And in this movie, it, it means absolutely nothing. It just seems like an idea somebody started having and then they just got, they're like, oh, okay, I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm done with that. On to other things. Yeah. Now, of course, this was part of the the bit that was filmed afterwards to complete the film. Right. So we can you know, ultimately excuse it that way. But within the context of the film itself, as a as a solid, you know, sort of cohesive viewing experience, uh, it's it's very alarming. Okay. So now you've got the uh, the party kids in the house, and I guess maybe we should mention who all of them are because, again, like cl- clearly, you're supposed to be getting, I think, a, a list of types. You know, your archetypes. Mm-hmm. So you've got Duke. He's the bad boy. He's the he's the tough guy bully wearing uh, plastic bad boy clothes, 
And then Duke's girlfriend's name is Linda. She's his his long-suffering girlfriend, and she's dressed in these bright 80s colors and spends a lot of the movie rolling her eyes at Duke's behavior. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like, oh, brother, that's our Duke. Yeah. Then you've got uh, Peter, the, you know, the 75-year-old accountant who I guess maybe you might think was one of the protagonists. Uh, At first, I thought the protagonist of the film was going to be Peter's girlfriend, Megan, because she, at least initially, has that sensible protagonist energy in a, in a right. horror movie with the group like this. But I notice more and more as the movie goes on that that evaporates, and then she mainly becomes characterized by like just making statements of fatalistic despair. She just uh, <laughs> says things like, there's no escape, every one of us is going to die. Wow. So she starts out as the Sigourney Weaver, potential Sigourney Weaver of the picture, and becomes the Bill Paxton of the picture. Yes, Megan. Yeah. The descent of Megan. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, a, a supremely uh, positive and optimistic force within the film is Rich, the jokester, who's got a puppet mm-hmm. who loves beer and chips. Uh, and he just sort of like, uh, he, he bumbles through every scene. There are moments where he shows flashes of fear, but there are other times where he's being like attacked by a monster and he's just like, yeah, okay, come on. You know, if you're going to kill me, bring it on. <laughs> uh, and then we got a couple of characters named Adrian and Dave. Uh, Adrian is, I think, supposed to be a British fancy fashion lady wearing this like cool cream colored jacket. And her boyfriend, Dave, is like also, I think, supposed to be a kind of like fancy rich guy. He's an allergic man with sinus problems. He's wearing a khaki jacket. I think these two are supposed to be fussy and fancy. They're like rich city people who are just over it and they want to get a cab back to Soho or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of what the what are the characters in uh, Christmas Vacation? Todd and, and Margo. They're sort of the Todd and Margo of this. Oh, OK. This yeah. They're kind of like American psycho people. Yeah. <laughs> Now, she's played by Charlotte Alexandria, who is a French actor uh, who apparently did a lot of a fairly diverse uh, smattering of film in Europe uh, before coming over and playing this. And in the documentary, they, they mentioned, I, I haven't seen this actually verified anywhere, but they said that she played the Virgin Mary in the life of Brian. Hmm. Okay. But I, I don't know about that. Uh, And then the last two people, uh, there is Carol, who's got curly blonde hair and seems like maybe she is of like a spiritual persuasion. You get the vibe like she could do your horoscope, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and then you've got Carol's boyfriend, Lewis, who has no characteristics that I could identify, except that he wears denim. And I think he's played by somebody who did some effects for the movie. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of that in, in this, especially when you get into the monsters. People in the monster suits are not... Uh, are not necessarily designated actors. They are also involved in other other parts of the production. Yeah, and so here's where you get into like that scene I talked about earlier where they're just like finding things and, and Duke is just continually turning his attention from one destructive project to another. Uh, <laughs> he, he's like prying open doors and smashing stuff. And, uh, and at one point somebody's like, Duke, stop doing that. And he goes like, I don't care about this old creep joint. Uh, but he gets the door open and and he gets attacked by a desiccated corpse. It just like a corpse falls out of the closet and he's like, nah, it's fake. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about that corpse, this is just, so this, yeah, this is just a scene where the corpse falls out of the closet on him. But later on in the film, 
we see that this corpse is completely articulated and, and can be brought to life. There's, there's so much love and, uh, and detail that went into the creation of the various monsters in this. So I, I will say that that, that is, that's the, the best thing I can say about this film is that, yeah, a, a lot of love went into the creation of these various zombies and corpses and uh, monsters and uh, grim reapers, uh, whatever the case may be. You know, it has, so after this, they, they get into a Ouija board scene, and this is sort of when all hell breaks loose, right? Like, uh, they start, they find a Ouija board. Of course, Carol is the one who's like, oh, I know how this thing works. Uh, it is a tool. She says, it's not a game, it's a tool. The dead can reach out to us. And so they play with the Ouija board, and the uh, the warlock ends up telling them, answers to questions through it. Like, they ask, will we ever leave this house? And he says, no. And then, um, and then the warlock transforms Carol into a demon by making a vein on his forehead throb and the camera zooms in on the vein on his forehead. And then Carol turns into like one of the demons from evil dead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's overtly evil dead esque. And, uh, and, oh, and I should point out that the Ouija board has pictures of the various monsters on it. So I think the Ouija board is supposed to be involved in the summoning or unleashing of this various monster, but we don't know exactly how or why that is the case. One thing I found funny is that the warlock in this movie keeps making chess metaphors for what he's doing, and they're Mm -hmm. often inappropriate, or I don't see how they apply to what he's talking about. Like (laughs) He'll say, like, it's just like a game of chess, but he's referring to trapping everybody in a house. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have to trap your opponent? I mean, I guess you, you form traps for people. In ch- I, I don't know. It, it didn't seem super applicable. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's even enough. Uh, mon- there not, aren't quite enough monsters to, to be an entire chess set anyway, right? But it's close. It's actually pretty close. Uh, but here's where you get to the standard, you know, you you probably, if you've seen horror movies before, you know the format after this. The, the you know, all hell breaks loose, various monsters are unleashed, and the party crew barricade themselves inside the house. And they're going to, of course, split up and get attacked one by one by, by different types of monsters. I like how after they first barricade themselves inside, Peter, the older guy, he... Mm-hmm. It seems he recognizes they have reached this point in the plot and then explains as much. He pretty much says, for the rest of the movie, we will now be picked off one by one. Yes. <laughs> and so they split up, like Duke and Linda go one way and they end up encountering some zombies that keep farting. Uh, we can talk about that if you want. I'm not sure what to make of that scene. And I, then uh, uh, Peter yeah. and Megan and Rich go another way. Dave and Adrienne stay put. They encounter some gremlins, I think. Yeah, so let's talk about those fart zombies. Um, they are they're credited as being the muck men, even though they don't mm. look particularly mucky. They look very dry to me, like sort of dried dog biscuit mummies. Yeah, crumbly. And, yeah, short, short, short crust. Yeah, and it's in a basement, and they are wine casks, and ultimately they're defeated by melting them with wine, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, when the effect looks pretty good, I have to say. And yeah. the muck men don't look bad. But clearly, at some point in post-production, and I, I think the, 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 the making of gets into this a little bit, uh, they decided, well, let's add fart noises. And I think the <laughs> rationale was they look kind of swamp thingy, so maybe swamp equals, uh, you know, equals fart noises. Swamp maybe. gas? Okay. Yeah. 
but but it also reminds me of some behind the scenes stuff I heard about uh, uh, the, the cartoon Invader Zim, where they were talking about putting together a scene, and if they didn't feel like the scene was funny enough, they would just keep adding sound effects to it until they were satisfied. <laughs> and so that's what this felt like to me. They were like they were thinking this needs something. This needs something else. Uh, maybe the answer is fart noises. It also reminds me of something I think uh, I recall Stephen King writing years ago about how uh, when he's writing a scene and he and he's trying to make it really scary and he can tell it's just not scary and he doesn't he can't figure out how to make it work then he just dials up the grossness factor mm-hmm. it's sort of like to to salvage something that he can't otherwise figure out how to make work just make it disgusting right and so that's what they go for here I don't think it works. It just it comes off as as kind of awkward and dumb. Um, but I have to say, the Muckmen themselves, I don't think they look bad. I think they look pretty good, uh, which is you know the same thing I'd say for most of the creatures in this. Well, yeah, I'd say that's the best thing about the movie is at least a solid two-thirds of the monsters look great. Mm-hmm. And you never know what you're going to get. It's just, yeah. it's, it's, it'll be totally unexpected. Uh, so an, another kind of encounter we get is that uh, the rich, fussy people, Dave and Adrienne, they're, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're sort of being catty at each other. They're at each other's throats. And then they get groblined. They, they, oh, uh, yeah. Wait, sorry. Is the term gromlin or groblin? Um, I, I say gromlin, but it's a made-up word. So you can certainly say groblin instead. No, it, no, no. I, I want to respect your, your, yeah, <laughs> uh, your, your terminology here. Gromlin. Yes. Yeah, so they get gromlined. They get attacked by a little green rubber gremlin merman with a like fish gator tail. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is a long scene of Adrian fighting the, the gromlins while synth funeral music plays music choice. Very weird. It's like a shopping mall version of Mozart's Requiem while she's struggling with this little rubber critter. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's, a, it's actually a, not a bad scene. Like she, she's good in this uh, fighting, making it, it's one of these where a person is often fighting um, a puppet or fighting just a, a prop, you know, mm. and acting like it's attacking them. But she she does a good job with the scene, and then also ultimately the gromlin looks pretty good. It, uh, it it's well designed. It um, it's not like it, it's not hobgoblins level. Um, it's maybe a little above that. Yeah, I'd say above hobgoblins, definitely below gremlins. Uh, yeah. Maybe on the level of ghoulies. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Oh, no, at some point in here, we get an update on the warlock framing narrative, which uh, which is this probably won't be all that surprising. But it turns out the lady in the coffin who is being revived by the evil magic of the warlock does not want to come back from the dead. She does not like the warlock guy, and she was just fine with her eternal slumber, not interested in his his satanic, you know, magical deal. And uh, she's just like, get me out of here. (laughs) Sometimes dead is better, you know? Yeah. Oh, but but to mention some of the other monster uh, scenes, which which are mostly pretty great. Uh, so Adrian gets attacked by uh, so she beats the Gromlin. She like mm-hmm. hits it with a fire poker, I think, and crushes mm-hmm. it with a bookshelf or something. Yeah, and then she runs off. Then she gets attacked by a different creature. This time it is the creature from the Electric Intestines Lagoon. Very nice looking monster. Very mucusy. Yeah. Very creative. I, I don't. I can't think of another film where a monster uses like belly tentacles to not only grab but also electrocute a victim, and in doing so, melt her face off with yeah, uh, like a stop yeah. motion effect, which uh, is really nice. 
There's another monster we get to see. I mentioned earlier, like the uh, the zombie baboon bride hag, which is where the the warlock lady escapes, or you know the, the warlock's bride escapes, and she she gets away from him, wanders into some catacombs, and then she gets attacked by this baboon creature. Yeah, puppeteer is clearly in shot in the lower left hand corner of the screen at one point, um, but uh, yeah, still still a fun yeah. sequence. Nice, but probably one of the Ultimately, one of the weaker-looking uh, puppet creatures that we encounter, and also one that doesn't—I I really don't know what exactly they were going for here. Now, somehow, as you mentioned earlier, Duke and Peter end up in a fist fight. The characters reunite. Uh, Megan's like, um, uh, well, we're all going to die, and that's just <laughs> how it is. And uh, and Duke is like, ah, I, I want to fight. And Peter's like, okay, bucko. And so they just start slugging it out. And— uh, and does this fight end with Duke dead? I don't recall. Uh, I do not remember either. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember what actually kills Duke. I think the Grim Reaper does. Oh, yeah, because the yeah, Grim Reaper. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, like a statue of the Grim Reaper comes to life, and then it attacks them. I think it kills Duke. And Peter, the old guy, literally dives right through a closed door, like busts straight through the <laughs> he wood. He does, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Like I mean, a it's cannonball. Al- yeah. yeah, it's always insane enough when someone like throws themselves through glass in one of these films. Which, yeah, yeah I mean, people can and do throw themselves through glass sometimes if the circumstance is right. But in movies, it takes on an entirely different air. People often pop up completely unscathed. They do it with just on the fly without a lot of thought. But in this case, it's not even a window; it's a wooden door. Yeah, that, that was a nice detail. Fortunately, uh, made completely out of balsa wood. Right. <laughs> Uh, the jokester Rich at some point, he you thought he was going to get killed earlier by one of the evil dead zombies, but then he just mm-hmm. keeps wandering around with his beer and his chips. And he eventually wanders into a like a lady leads him into a cave and then she yep. transforms into a giant spider. So I think she's supposed to be like a like a spider woman creature of some type. And she she sucks all his fluids out, which is yeah. a nice effect. It is. It's a nice effect. It's a it's a fun sequence, but also one that raises questions about sort of the the energy economy of this film because yeah. uh, a lot of work went into this. They have like a custom spider woman lair there. There's a different actor playing this sort of Japanese Jorogumo spider woman, and she doesn't just. She doesn't just like you know suddenly reveal oh she has half a spider face or suddenly she's a spider no there there's like five stages to this transformation uh, each one involving some some either impressive or ambitious uh, practical effects so uh, and, and that's not even counting the the rich head that is then deflated like a balloon when yes. he's sucked dry yeah like so much like the content is severely like eyebrow raising but uh, really great effects. <laughs> but uh, the, likewise with the very next scene which is the grim reaper fight on the balcony like the old guy peter ends up fighting this it is it's just death personified with a scythe this is this is one that definitely reminded me of the key and peel gremlins 2 um pitch meeting uh skit yeah. Yeah. uh there's the one where the guy recommends that hulk hogan be in the picture and they're like whoa hold the phone you're, you're talking hulk hogan uh, pro wrestler. It's, it's similar to that. It's like, okay, we're going to put the Grim Reaper in this. The personification of death, a highly symbolic character that is very rarely actually incorporated into some sort of a, a film. I mean, there are examples of this, obviously, uh, including stuff like Bill and Ted or 
or I guess what the Final Destination films to a certain extent without that character like really appearing on the screen. But for the most part, like the Grim Reaper is is not a, a physical entity that you talk about people encountering unless you're dealing with a property that is being fairly satirical or extremely symbolic. Well, wait, uh, sorry. Thinking back to the Final Destination movies, does Tony Todd actually play the Grim Reaper or just a guy who knows about the Grim Reaper? Oh, I'm not sure on this. I have a very vague memory of these films, and I don't think I saw all of them. Tony Todd, of course, is the actor who played Candyman. Yeah. uh, And is is a great actor. Yeah, I don't remember if he's just kind of uh, the wise man who knows the ways of death or is death embodied. I I recall like several of those movies have a scene where the characters go and they meet him and they're like, hey, what's up? And he's like, and he tells them like facts about death. He's like, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) he's just like did you know um i i I recall in in the first one he refers to the grim reaper as a mac daddy really yeah yeah now is tony todd i can't remember is tony todd wearing like a black robe does he have like a a scythe pin on his shirt or anything i don't recall the capacity in which he is encountered in the later films in the first film i think he plays a guy who is interpreted as a a mortuary worker like they break into a morgue where one of the people is being kept and he's mm. just there, and uh, and he tells them facts about death, and then tells them that like they can't escape death because death is a Mac Daddy. <laughs> well, this death I mean, is... it's a great cameo, yeah. <laughs> this Grim Reaper, however, can be defeated, and the way they defeat him is pretty hilarious. Yeah, they like knock. So Peter, I think, punches him or <laughs> somehow knocks him <laughs> off the balcony, and then he explodes, just like explodes in a giant fireball, like he's made of gasoline. Yeah, like a truck that has gone off a cliff in an action film or a Mad uh, Max movie or something, and then just burst into a, a, a just a yeah big fireball at the bottom. That's what death does when you knock him off a roof. So uh, there's some more just sort of like wrapping up the plot kind of stuff. Uh, there is a scene at the end that I got to say, as, as much as I enjoyed some of the monster scenes early on, the ending scene was excruciating. It just mm-hmm. goes on and on and on. It's basically a chase where uh, the woman who has been awoken from her eternal slumber by the sacrifices within the house and is trying to escape her like evil warlock husband, she runs out of the house and then zombies keep attacking her and she just keeps running from them. And it's playing this driving synth music. That's kind of like good and getting you pumped up at first, but then it just goes on and on and on and on. And I, 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 I thought I was going to start screaming. Yeah, this, I had a similar experience. Like I'd been, I was kind of really more enthusiastic about these monsters and some of the acting uh, but then this whole sequence hits, and I begin to feel like a little weird, like a little nauseous, yeah. you know, like like it was it was getting psychedelic in the bad sense. Like this scene is the brown acid, you know, right? Yes, <laughs> and it did seem to go. I don't think it's actually that long. I think it's maybe it's less than ten minutes, but whoo, it just feel it's just dragging. It really drags. And then basically at the end, we get our nice, like, sort of crazy dark ending where Creon finally comes bursting up through that grave, the pulsating grave from the beginning yeah. of the film. He's laughing maniacally. We cut to the, the Jawa child laughing maniacally and yes. then freeze frame on Creon laughing. And that's it. Roll credits. Yes. Yes. And that's spookies. <laughs> <laughs> spookies, you know. I can't stop thinking about your comparison of the Grim Reaper with, with the Hulkster. From, from the <laughs> Key and Peele skit. Um, something about that is connecting very strongly for me. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're going to have the Grim Reaper in your picture, like, I, I mean, I, I, I hate to criticize the one thing that really works about this film, the bon- the monster buffet. Like, the Grim Reaper doesn't need to be on the buffet. He, like, he, right. he needs to be a, an, an entree that you order sp- special. Like, maybe you, you have a side item with that. But for the most part, like, this is the Grim Reaper. He's a big deal. He needs to be your, your big bad uh, in, instead of just one of the random things summoned by the Ouija board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it could be part of the buffet, but it at least needs to be a special part of the buffet. So it's not just like one more thing you scoop out of a steam tray. It is uh, it's the roast beef carving station. Yeah. You know, it's like the special the, the end point. This like this is where the real stuff is. However, I will say the Grim Reaper looks pretty cool. Like all these, you can you can question why these monsters are in it, but ultimately all the monsters are pretty fun to look at on screen when they show up. Uh, some of them look great. Uh, some of them look uh, ambitious, but but interesting. Uh, they are ultimately the stars of this picture. I want to be a Reaper maniac. Have fun with my family and friends. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything, uh, you know, sometimes we do a deeper read of some of the th- some of the aspects of a particular film, but this, this film's kind of like a, it's like a meta material that, mm. uh, that resists any stain or, um, or, or water affi- beads affixing to it. Everything just runs off of it. There's not a, there aren't a lot of deep thoughts we can really have about spookies, but that's all right. It, w- it wicks away cognition. It does. <laughs> yeah. It, don't watch this film if you want, want to have deep thoughts about virtually anything. Uh, but if you want to see some, some kind of groovy monsters, uh, it's, it's worth taking a look at. Which uh, leads to our next point. Where can you watch Spookies? Well, again, Vinegar Syndrome put out an awesome Blu-ray of the movie. Uh, if, especially if you're a hardcore Spookies fan, that's what you need to pick up. Uh, it's a 4K restoration from the 35mm original camera negative, packed full of special bonuses. But you can also stream this film via Shutter or AMC. Yes, American movie classics, because this is Spookies after all. Is there a Criterion Collection edition? And I'm no. sorry I keep making that joke. <laughs> uh, Vinegar Syndrome is your Criterion uh, edition for, for films like this. I, I promise I'll stop now. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, close the tomb on this one and, and try and seal it shut. Uh, but it, certainly we'll be back with another Weird House Cinema episode next Friday. I believe we're going to be talking uh, about a film of... Um, of superior quality, uh, both objectively and subjectively speaking. Uh, but in the meantime, you can check out all these episodes of Weird House Cinema uh, that publish on Fridays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We are primarily a science podcast, but we set aside most of the science on Fridays to discuss a weird film. Uh, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind are on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday, and on Monday we do Listener Mail, Rerun on the Weekend. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, radio visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows 